0: Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. It can be hard to endure temptation, and it's even harder when you're enduring trials. Uh, Perhaps you're trying to learn to be generous, for instance. Uh, You're trying to learn to repent of your mammon worship, so you make a concerted effort to be sacrificial in your love for others by giving up a few luxuries here and there, so you can use that money to give. But then some unexpected hardship hits. Maybe it's a car accident, maybe something goes wrong with the house, the water heater goes out or the furnace goes out, something like that. Maybe it's an unexpected medical bill, whatever it is, mayhem hits and Allstate's not there to protect you. Uh, Suddenly it's much harder to resist the urge to run to your money for refuge. The temptation to stop helping others so you can maintain your own comfortable lifestyle suddenly becomes much stronger. In fact, in that scenario, the temptation can become so strong that we can begin to ask ourselves some very troubling questions. We'll ask ourselves, why did God allow that deer to dart out in front of my car? Why did He let my furnace fail? Doesn't He know that I'm trying to be generous? Well, wonder, is, is God trying to make me sin or something? Because it, it seems like He's against me. It seems like the more I'm trying to do the right thing, the harder He makes it. Why does He do that? Is He wanting me to fail or something? Well, if you've ever asked yourself that question, then this morning's passage is for you. Because in today's passage, James answers that very question. The passage is James 1, 13-15. Let's begin by reading the passage in its context, starting in verse 2 and continuing through verse 18. He writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, And withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death do not be deceived my beloved brothers every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits Of his creatures. One of the more relatable events in the scriptures occurs in Exodus 32. It's the story of the golden calf. I'm sure the account of the golden calf is is pretty familiar to everyone here. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to receive the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on them after Israel agreed to keep God's covenant. And while he's away, the people start getting antsy. Moses is up on the mountain for a pretty long time, and the mountain, remember, is covered with this thick cloud of fire and smoke. It's described as appearing like a devouring fire in Exodus 24. There's this lightning in the cloud with peals of thunder cracking the otherwise relative silence of the barren wilderness. I mean, this thing is terrifying. And so the people begin to think that Moses is probably dead up there. He probably did something to anger God, and so God killed him, and that's why he's not coming back down. And so they decide to come up with a plan. Their leader, the man who brought them out of Egypt, is dead. And so they come up with a plan. They come to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now the people of Israel remember. Uh, they're an incredibly obstinate people. They've done nothing but complain since the day they've left Egypt. They, they didn't really like Moses before they left Egypt, and they don't really care much for him now. So you can imagine the situation that Aaron's in. Here's this, this huge mass of stubborn, angry people, and they're coming to him saying they want him to make a new set of gods to replace the old one that killed Moses. So what did Aaron do? What would you do? Exodus 32, 2-4 tells us, it says, So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I want you to note what Aaron does here. He tells the people to gather their gold. He then collects their gold. And then he takes an engraving tool and uses it to fashion a golden calf. So I think it's probably fair to say that Aaron had a pretty active role in all this, right? I mean, it's going to take a lot of time to garve a golden calf. There's no accident here. Well, this is where the story gets good and, I think, incredibly relatable. God tells Moses what's happening. Moses comes down from the mountain. He smashes the tablets of stone. He grinds down the golden calf into a fine powder and makes the people drink it. And and then he says to Aaron, essentially, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, but he says to him, what are you doing? I mean, what happened? Didn't God say, don't worship any other gods before me? Didn't he say, don't make for yourself any carved images? I mean, those are the first two commandments. And I turn my back for a few minutes, and the first thing you do is go about making idols to worship instead of God. What's wrong with you? And then Aaron gives what is probably about as human of a response as I think you're ever going to find in the Scripture. He says... And I quote, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you have gold. Take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. (laughs) I threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. you got to love that, don't you? I mean, you've said something like that before, right? Your parents come home and there's a brand new lamp that smashed to pieces on the floor and they're, they're livid. They're screaming at you, demanding to you know what happened in the 20 minutes that they were away at the grocery store and what do you say? What do you manage to stammer out? You're like, gee guys, I don't really know what happened. I mean, it's really weird. You see, my little brother Michael, you guys know Mikey, right? Well... You see, Mikey was lonely, and he asked me to play catch with him. And you know how you guys are always saying that I should play with my little brother more? Well, I was trying to do that. I was trying to listen to you. And so I said, okay, Mikey, why don't you go downstairs? I'll be down in a few minutes to play catch. And I'm not entirely sure how it happened. But when I came downstairs, the lamp was just like that. It was broken. It's so strange. It must have been like a tiny earthquake or something, you know. That's Aaron. Aaron. I don't really know what happened, Moses. The people said, make us a calf. And I said, fine, give me your goal. I threw it in the fire, and then poof, out came this calf. I guess it's a very human response, isn't it? When we're in trouble, when we do something stupid, what's usually the first thing we like to do? We like to blame other people, don't we? It's not my fault, Moses, it's these people. You know how stubborn they are? They made me do this against my will. Look, Mom, Dad, I'm not really sure how the lamp got broken. I was just trying to do what you told me. We hate taking responsibility for our actions. Probably my favorite example of this happened a few years back. Daniel was maybe uh, three years old at the time, and we were outside in the drive when it was very cold, uh, just like today, and there was this patch of ice on the driveway, and and Daniel is running around and goofing around, as three-year-olds are wont to do, and he hits the patch of ice, and he slips, and he falls, and he starts crying up a storm, and I turn to him and see him laying there on the patch of ice, and and first I ask him, are you okay? And he bellows out, you know, yeah, I'm okay, I'm fine, and I ask him, what happened? And he kind of sniffles, and he says, Jesus pushed me. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing, so I ask him, I said, what was that, what did you say? And he said, Jesus pushed me. We had to talk about theology, a little bit of theology lesson there in, in the moment, but uh, unfortunately we do that sometimes. We don't just blame people for our mistakes. Uh, we blame God for them. Again, this is an incredibly human response, and I say that because you see the sort of response come out of the first man who ever lived after the first sin that he ever committed. After Adam ate of the tree, God asked him, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam doesn't even take the time to admit the failure. Instead, he just starts assigning blame. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He doesn't just blame Eve for his failure, he blames God. God was the one who gave him Eve, and Eve gave him the fruit. The idea is if only Eve hadn't been there, things might have turned out differently. Gee, you really messed up this time, God. So like us we 're so anxious to escape culpability for our actions that we 'll actually try to turn the tables and start accusing other people, even completely innocent people of sinning by making us sin it 's really pretty twisted when you stop to think about it. It takes a whole other level of deception to try to do that well, as I mentioned at the beginning of today 's message, we do the same thing when we 're experiencing trials. We're experiencing temptation, or temptation is intensified because of some trial that comes into our life. When that happens, we start to ask ourselves, what's the deal here? Is God trying to make me sin or something? Because it sure feels like it. And there's a good reason why we ask that question. After all, God is sovereign over our trials, isn't He? It seems to be the implication here in verses 2-4 to when James tells his readers, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The implication sure seems to be that God is sovereignly bringing trials into their life for their good, and so James is telling them to rejoice over those trials. And that's a thought that's certainly backed up throughout the Scripture. But the dilemma that these readers are wrestling with is the fact that these trials seem to be inflaming their sinful passions, not extinguishing them. James is saying the trials are for their benefit, but they only find themselves stumbling more under pressure. And so they're confused, because it seems like God is making things harder for them, not easier. It's like if you've ever had an older brother, sometimes they'll play this game, which they think is, is simply hilarious, uh, where they'll grab your arm and then they'll start punching you with it. Punch you with your own arm and then they'll mock you by repeating, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. You know, That's what it feels like for these readers. God is telling them they need to be obedient, but then He goes and puts them in this situation where they feel like they're compelled to sin and so they're wondering, what's the deal? Why is God doing this to me? After explaining the benefit of trials in verses 2 to 4 and why they need to persevere in trials and how in verses 5 to 12, James now starts to address this question in verses 13 to 15. Does God make you sin? Is He responsible for your mistakes? James answers this question in verses 13 to 15. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So does God make you sin? Is He responsible for your sinful choices? James gives a resounding no. Absolutely not. And then he gives two reasons in verses 13 to 15. The first reason comes in verse 13. There he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So we know that God is not responsible for our sin because, James explains, God is entirely sinless. That's the first explanation he gives for our sin. James says that it can't come from God because God is completely without sin. He's sinless. In fact, He's not just without sin, but He's completely impervious to sin, meaning He cannot even be induced to sin. He is untemptable or impeccable, if you want to use a more technical theological term. God is impeccable. That means He cannot be tempted by evil. Now, it's probably a rather strange concept to consider after all isn't Jesus God right and doesn't Hebrews 4 15 say that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin I mean clearly this indicates that God can be tempted by with evil doesn't it well it all depends on how you translate this word peyrodzo, which is translated as tempted here in verse 13 if that word peirazo sounds familiar it's because it's a very similar word that I, to what I referred to a few times in the past several weeks, peirazmos. Peirazmos is translated as trials in verse 2 and again actually in verse 12. Peirazmos is the noun form of this word peirazo which the ESV translates as to tempt here in verse 13. Back when we were in verse 2, I explained that this word peirazmos or peirazo can be translated alternately either as temptation or trial, depending on whether or not the pressure is external or internal. For example, suppose that there was a judge who was suspected of corruption. If the government launched an undercover investigation and tried to offer the judge a bribe, that would be one way to use this word perazzo. They are testing or trying the judge by offering him a bribe. Now, suppose the judge really was corrupt. And so when he he was offered the bribe, he found it appealing. That's the other way to use this term. He's tempted by the bribe. There's a kind of overlap in the word depending on whether or not the pressure is coming from the inside or the outside. In fact, we carry this overlap into English. Uh, For example, say we're hanging out on Thanksgiving, and I'm sitting on the couch in my fat fat pants, and I say to you, I'm stuffed. And you may reply by saying, well, could I tempt you with some pumpkin pie? And what you're saying there is you're making an offer of pumpkin pie. It says, nothing of my desires, you're just attempting to persuade me to eat it. Now, I may be so stuffed that I find the offer disgusting. In which case you'd say, I'm not tempted by the offer. But on the other hand, I may reply by saying, wow, that is pretty tempting. And what I'm saying is that that offer is appealing. Two completely, di- pers- uh, two completely different perspectives on the word. One referring to the author, uh, the offer, the other referring to the persuasiveness of the off- offer. But we use the same word in both instances, the word tempt. Well, that's the, word, the way this word peirozo is used in the Greek as well. And that's helpful to know because it really helps us grasp the sense of what James is saying here in these two different instances. First off, he he helps us understand what James means when he says that God cannot be tempted by evil. When James says that, he isn't saying, he's not saying that someone cannot attempt to make God sin. Clearly they can. In fact, that's really the point of Hebrews 4. It's saying that when Jesus became a man, He shared in our temptations. There were efforts to make Him sin. Satan, for instance, tempts Him three different times in Matthew 4, and yet Jesus was without sin, meaning He never once acted on those offers to sin. So yes, it's possible to tempt God in that sense, to try to persuade Him to sin. You could almost say that this happens all the time. When you and I sin, for instance, you could argue that we're tempting God. We are provoking Him with our unjust actions, and God, in a sense, has the option either to return evil with evil or to respond to our evil with good. Obviously, He responds with good every single time. And the reason why God responds with good every single time is because internally He is good. Meaning he finds sin and evil unappealing. In fact, he's utterly repulsed by it. This is how Jesus could be tempted in all ways as we are, and yet never once sin. You you look at the temptation, for instance, that Satan offers, and and Jesus is so far away from, from considering the offer that he's actually filled with a kind of holy anger at the thought by the end of the trial. It's not appealing in the slightest. It's repulsive. It's gross to him. It's like you coming to me and saying, hey, Ryan, how would you like to eat these moldy coffee grounds? (laughs) You know, I mean, you can tempt me with that offer, but I'm not going to be tempted by it. Okay, it's gross. That's the point that James is trying to make here when he says that God cannot be tempted by evil. Yes, it's possible to test or to try him. You're not supposed to. By the way, there are explicit commands in the Scripture. Uh, For instance, Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So you shouldn't do that. But the reason that command is there is because it is possible to put Him to the test. But you can never tempt Him. Meaning there's never going to be anything that you can do to make Him sin or, or for evil to be appealing to Him. Is entirely contrary to his nature. He is impeccable, unable to be persuaded by evil. So that's one way the distinction in this word is helpful. It helps us understand what James is saying when he says that God cannot be tempted by evil. He's saying that it's impossible to persuade God with evil. Reason being, God is perfectly holy, He is completely righteous. But there's another way the, the, the distinction in this word is helpful. It's helpful because it helps us see what James means when he says that God does not tempt us. What James is not saying when he says this, what he's not saying is that God does not test us. He most certainly does. Exodus 16, for instance, God orders Israel to collect only a day's worth of manna daily, quote, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. God wants to see if they have faith in him. He wants to see if they'll trust him to provide for tomorrow. And so he says, only a day's worth. And then he waits to see if they'll trust him to provide by obeying the command. This sort of thing happens all the time. Take Abraham, for example. God tells Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. And do you know why? He gives the answer in Genesis 22.12. As Abraham was lifting up the knife to slay his only son, the angel of the Lord calls out and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing as you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The whole thing was a test. God was wanting to see if Abraham would be obedient in all things. Needless to say, Abraham passed with flying colors. Hebrews tells us that he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. So, yeah, I'd say he probably has some pretty strong faith. Here's a good one. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. God says he's going to send, allow, however you want to phrase it. You can probably pro- play with the language here depending on how you want to look at it. Point is, God says lying prophets, false prophets, are going to visit Israel. And do you know why? Moses says, Deuteronomy 13.3, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, depending on how you want to frame that, you could say that God is sending these prophets or that He's allowing them to go to Israel. Either way, the idea clearly is that God wants them to be there. He wants them to be there. So the one who cannot be tempted by evil and who tempts no one is going to let Israel be tempted by false prophets. Why? Because he wants to test them to see if they love God with all their heart. He wants to see if they'll run after false gods or if they'll stay loyal to Him. And there are more examples of this sort of thing throughout the Scripture, more than I can share. It's just all over the place. So whatever James is saying here, it can't be that God doesn't put temptation in front of us. He does. If we're talking about temptation in the sense of not just an opportunity to sin, but situations that are even specifically designed to put pressure on us, to force us to choose between obedience and sin, there's just no avoiding it. God lets that happen. In fact, He doesn't just let it happen. He orders it. He directs it. There's just no other way to interpret Abraham and Isaac or the Israelites in the manna, and most especially the situation with the false prophets. I mean, those false prophets, right? They aren't just presenting Israel with an opportunity to sin, they're trying to induce them to sin. They're trying to persuade them to sin. And God says this is happening in order to test Israel, it's part of His design. So we can't really say that God doesn't put temptation in front of us. He does. So what's James saying here? Surely he's not ignorant of, of, of this concept when it's so incredibly prevalent throughout the Scriptures and at key points in Israel's history, for that matter. So it's not like he's making some sort of mistake or he's attempting to contradict the Scriptures. So what's he doing here? I think you find the answer in the meaning of this word, pirazzo. Starting in verse 13, his use of this word shifts, and that's made apparent by how he applies this word to God. He's not saying that people can't try to persuade God to sin. He's saying that that internally, God is not moved by these offers. He's impeccable, unable to be persuaded by these offers to sin. In the same way, when the hypothetical Christian here says, I'm being tempted by God... They're not saying, God is organizing circumstances to put me to the test. James has already established that God does that. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. No, the real issue here is, is God making me sin? Like, is He forcing my hand? Basically, is he the older brother hitting you with your arm, telling you, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself? That's an important question, right? That's an important question to answer. Because I think we would all recognize that if God were doing that, then we can't really be held accountable for our sin. Right? I mean, if you were carjacked on the way home today, and the carjacker held your spouse or your kids at gunpoint, and then ordered you to go and rob the local liquor liquor store... And you went in and you robbed the local liquor store, you're probably not going to go to jail for that, are you? And the reason is because we understand intuitively that you can't be held accountable for things that you're forced to do against your will. We would never punish the man who robs the bank to save his family because he did it against his will. It wasn't something he wanted to do. It was contrary to his desires. We'd say the carjacker made him do it. Well, that's what trials can sometimes feel like. The pressure becomes so intense that we can almost feel like we don't have a choice. We, we think that God's the carjacker and he's putting the gun to our head and saying, now go rob the liquor store. That's what the hypothetical Christian seems to be saying here. They feel like God is forcing them to sin against their will. That's the key phrase here, by the way. They perceive that God is forcing them to do this against their will, that God is forcing their hand. He's forcing them to go against what they want to do. And the reason why the hypothetical Christian is saying this is because they don't want to be held accountable for their actions. And to this, James says... That's not how this works. God doesn't force anyone to commit sin. And how do you know that? Well, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself tempts no one. In other words, there's no sin in God. He's perfectly righteous. And so He's not going to actively place those desires in anyone. He's not going to force anyone to sin against their will. He will neither create the evil desire nor will he put someone in the position to where they must sin, where they have no other choice but to sin. I know that raises a ton of questions here, both theologically and morally. And So I'll just say up front, we're going to get there eventually, at least with the theological issues raised by this assertion, if not the moral ones. And in case you're wondering right now, uh, I'll just go out and say, yes, I'm still a Calvinist. It probably sounds like I'm skating pretty close to the theological edge here that I'm really close to saying that God is not sovereign over all things. But that's actually where Calvinism lives. Close to the edge with a very healthy tension between the twin realities of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So just to be clear, nothing, nothing of what I just said contradicts that theological system. Though I admit it may... Uh, contradicts some of its abuses. And if you're wondering how that all comes together, don't worry, we'll get there. We're not going to get there this week, <laughs> okay, but we'll get there. All I want you to understand right now is what James is saying, is that you can know that God does not force anyone to sin because He's perfectly righteous. He's entirely sinless. So if God isn't making us sin, then where is our sin coming from? James answers this question in verses 14 to 15. Again, he's addressing how we can know that God is not responsible for our sin. He's already told us that we can know this because God is entirely sinless. That's the first reason we can know that God doesn't force us to sin. Now, second, he tells us that temptation comes from within. Temptation comes from within. Again, we see this in verses 14 to 15. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. By this point, I think we can see what category of temptation James is talking about, right? When James says, let no one say, when he is being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. He's not addressing the external pressure, we sometimes call temptation. Rather, he's talking about that inner pull towards sin. This is that part of us that wrestles over the appeal of sin, that finds the temptation's selling points persuasive. James says, guess where that appeal comes from? It comes from your own desires. He presents rather two rather vivid pictures to illustrate this point. First, he compares temptation uh, really to a to a hunting or a fishing expedition. The word for lured means just exactly what it says. The first thing you have to do, if you want to catch a fish or shoot a deer or something like that, is you have to bait it. You need something to attract it, to pull it in so you can shoot or catch it. James says the same thing happens when we sin. We're lured in. The second thing you have to do, once the fish is on the line, for instance, is you have to reel it in. Where you shoot the deer, then you have to drag it away to take it home. And that's really what this word entice means. The meaning is closer to, to drag away. So we're both lured and dragged away when we sin. We bite, and then we're reeled in like a fish with a hook in his mouth. Now guess who's doing the fishing, according to James? Guess who's hunting us down? Is it God? God? Is he trying to trap us? That, that wouldn't seem right. Again, there's no sin in God, so it doesn't make sense that he's trying to hunt us. Uh, maybe it's Satan. That sounds pretty good, right? I mean, clearly he does want to hunt us. Scripture says he prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So no doubt we could say that in some instances he's the hunter. But guess what James says here. Look again at verse 14. He says, But each person is tempted and lured and, and, and enticed, Dragged away by his own desire. By his own desire. You see that? In other words, James almost says that there's a sense in which you are made to do things that you don't want to do. And that's really important, by the way. He acknowledges that you will often feel conflicting desires when you sin. And that you will sometimes find yourself doing things that you don't particularly like. But here's what you have to realize you do those things you don't particularly like because you still want to do them. See, the reason why it sometimes feels like we're being forced to sin, as in trials, for instance, is because very often we want more than one thing. That's actually part of what trials force us to do. They force us to choose. Am I going to trust God and be generous to others, or am I going to put my faith in mammon and serve myself? Truth is, there are a lot of times where we want to do both. We want to have two masters. And sometimes we can get away with that. Trials, though, they'll threaten that balance. They'll force us to choose. And so it can feel like we're doing something against our will because we end up doing something we don't particularly like to do. But guess what? You're still going to end up choosing the thing that you want to do. When you choose to serve yourself rather than to give, for instance, it may very, very well be that you sincerely want to get better at giving. The problem is that you just happen to want to serve yourself more. So this is a very real conflict where you end up doing something that you may not like. But it's not because you're forced against your will by some external force to do that. Rather, it's because your selfish desires drag you away to sin against God. Paul describes this tension in Romans 7, where he says, this is Romans 7, 14-23, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh soul under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. If you notice here, Paul actually uses very similar language there, he talks about being held captive, being led captive by the law of sin. And he says that this is contrary to the law of his mind in which God, Paul delights in God's commands. So there's this battle going on in Paul where he wants to do what God commands him to do, but he still finds himself disobeying anyways. And so what does Paul conclude? He says, So, it is no, uh, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He gets to the point where he says sin is kind of happening against His will, that He's being dragged to do it against His will, but who's forcing Him to do it? It's the sin that dwells within Him, in His members, as He likes to put it. Now, if that sounds borderline schizophrenic, it's almost because it kind of is. You see, there's another vivid illustration that James uses to describe the sin process. You see it here in verse 15, and that's the picture of birth. He speaks first of desire, conceiving sin. If you can think of a promiscuous woman, that's the picture we have here. There are these these passions within us, these desires that want to be fulfilled, and so they go out looking for a partner. That comes when temptation is offered. That's really the progression from verses 14 to 15. We go from temptation to conception. And so the idea is that the desire is there looking to be fulfilled, and then finally, once it finds a willing partner... Together they conceive. That's a pretty damning thought, isn't it? What James is saying is that so far, from bringing, so far from being dragged away by some external temptation against our will, our desires actually go out courting temptation because they want to be fulfilled. Anyways, first, the desire conceives sin. The idea here is that this, the, the action isn't quite there yet. It's still just there in the thoughts. Desire finds its mate as it encounters temptation, and then there's this realization that the possibility of sin is there. Sin is conceived, but it isn't just born just yet, and it's it's there in the mind as the sinner begins to consider and plan and plot about how they're going to fulfill their selfish desires. Next, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. The sinner finally follows through. They're not just entertaining the possibility of sin anymore. They're acting on it. Even if those sins are entirely mental, meaning they don't express themselves in any concrete actions, all the same, the sinner gives in. They start telling their boss off in their mind, for instance, finding satisfaction in how awful their boss would feel if they just said what they wanted to say or they daydream and find pleasure fantasizing about how wonderful it would be if they did cheat on their spouse with their co-worker. Finally, James hits the climax of this progression from desire to sin when he says that after sin is born, it grows. And as it grows, it brings forth the ultimate end to sin, and that's death. And there's really just so much to say about this part here. There are several dimensions to how sin brings death, and there's so much to say about each of them. For instance, the Scripture says that the penalty for sin is death. That's pronounced as a part of the curse in the Garden of Eden. Sin provokes the wrath of a holy and just God who has proclaimed that the right and just penalty for sin is death. So mankind doesn't live forever. We die, our bodies decay and die, and that's because that's the product of sin. Sin also actually leads to death in a very practical level when you stop to think about it. The Proverbs, Proverbs, for instance, warns about this over and over again. You commit adultery, for instance, and before long you're going to encounter a jealous spouse who takes your life. You lose your temper and you, end up make, picking, you may end up picking a fight with the wrong guy and die. Drug and alcohol abuse obviously can kill you. As can the long-term physiological effects of things like stress and anxiety. So sin, I mean, quite literally produces death. That is its natural product, its intended goal, especially as it grows, as it progresses. But there's one more element to this as well, and that's spiritual death. You see, the reason why you and I have these desires, the reason why we struggle to do what is right, even when we want to, is because when Adam sinned, he brought spiritual death into the human race. That means that we're born into this world not only unable to receive God's truth, but we actually run away from it. That's the picture we have in Romans 3 and Ephesians 2. It's confirmed in 1 Corinthians 2, Romans 8. And that's what Paul's describing, actually, when he talks about the flesh or the law of sin in Romans 7. He's talking about this principle resident within his nature which dwells in the members of his body that continually drives him to reject God. Paul realizes that as he runs from sin, it's like trying to run from his own shadow. No matter how far he runs, he can't get away from it because it's inside of him. Again, he feels held captive by this sin nature. And so he cries out in agony at the end of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? Who's going to save him from this enemy within? He can't do it himself because he's the problem. It's his own desires springing up from within that's causing this. And then Paul declares, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In chapter 8, he goes on to explain that not only are our bodies going to be redeemed at the coming of Christ, which is going to have a dramatic effect on these corrupting desires, but the the reason why we struggle now is because Christ has given us the Spirit who's constantly waging war against the desires of the flesh. That's actually how we can have hope that we'll be set free from the power of the flesh at the resurrection because we possess the spirit of adoption now. So if you're wanting to know why it is that you have this ongoing struggle with sin, where you feel like you're being held captive to do things against your will, it's because you have two different principles working in you. That's why I say Paul sounds borderline schizophrenic. It's because he's describing the fact that on one hand we possess a sin nature that is filled with corrupt desires and actively tries to run from God, but on the other hand we're also indwelt by the Holy Spirit who fills us with holy desires so that we want to run to God. There's a kind of battle going on within us between our old self and our new self. And yeah, God is a part of that battle, but He's not the one dragging you away into sin. He's the one dragging you out of it. The pressure to give in to temptation, that comes from within. That's your own sin nature that's doing that. We'll probably come back around to discuss this some more in a couple weeks. There's more to say about the flesh and the role it plays in our choices, but I don't want to get into that right now. I think we'll be better prepared to do that in a couple weeks. All I want to establish today is, number one, the reason why you fall prey to temptation is because you're temptable. It's because you're temptable. Earlier I said God cannot be tempted by evil. It can't persuade Him because it's completely contrary to His nature. Well, the same can't be said of you. The reason why you, I, everyone, save for Christ, the reason why we're all drawn to evil is because we are evil. Temptation works on us because we have sinful desires inside of us. Just like you cannot effectively bribe an upright judge, so you cannot effectively tempt someone who is not already drawn to sin. We're the corrupt judge. Someone offers us a bribe and we take it because we're corrupt. So that's why you fall prey to temptations. Because you're temptable. You have sinful desires resident inside of you. That's one point I want to establish today. The second is this. You will ultimately choose what you want to choose. You will ultimately choose what you want to choose. In other words, you may feel like there's this battle going on and that you're being forced to do something against your will. And you will feel that way sometimes if you're a believer. That's a sign of the Spirit's presence in your life. But at the end of the day, you have to decide which principle you're going to obey. The law of sin or the law of God. And make no mistake, whichever way you choose, that's ultimately an expression of what you want to do and of what you love most. This is why the Scripture says that men will be judged according to their deeds. It's because as conflicted as we may be in our desires, there can only be one thing that we want most. And if you want to know what that is for someone, just look at their actions. You may want to spend time with the Lord in prayer, for instance, but if you want to sleep more, guess what you'll do? And guess what that reveals about what you really love most? You know, we like to convince ourselves that secretly we're really great people because we have all these good intentions in our heart. But Jesus says the tree is judged by the fruit. And I think you can see why. It's because our actions reveal who we really are. Let me say that one more time because, again, we often try to protect our sin by deceiving ourselves into thinking we're good people because, quote, because of, quote, who we are on the inside. We say, if people only got to know who I am on the inside, then they'd really like who I am. Listen, guys, that's a lie. It's a lie. We act like who we are on the outside isn't an accurate picture of who we really are. And the truth about us, the real truth of who we are, is is hidden on the inside. Guys, that's a lie. That is an absolute lie. Do you want to know who you really are? It's not a mystery. Look at your actions. Look at what you do. That's who you really are. That's where your desires are revealed. Your actions reveal what you ultimately love most. And that means that who you are is what you do. So no, God isn't trying to make you sin. You can't blame God for your sin. The only person you have to blame is yourself. Now, there's a sense in which James raises more questions than he answers in this passage. If you stop to think about it, he's addressing one particular theological issue, which is, does God force me to sin in trials? And as he cuts off the head of that theological hydra, a whole other host of theological questions spring up in its place. Questions like, how can a good God ordain evil? You know, we've said that God may not cause us to sin, but He does test us. And as we've seen, He sometimes does that through the actions of sinful people. How does He do that? If he's as good as James says, then how can he purpose to send false prophets to test Israel? That's one question that comes up when you really wrestle with what James says here. Another question is, how can God ordain sin without causing it? Again, James is saying that when it comes to sin, the problem is inside of us, not outside. That God doesn't force us to sin against our will. I've said that matters because we instinctively recognize that we can't be held accountable for actions that we do against our will. Well, how does that work? How is God's sovereignty compatible with human responsibility? That's another question that arises out of this passage once we realize what James is saying here. And over the next couple of weeks, I want to try to tackle those questions with you. Uh, After all, in the five-plus years that I've been preaching here, I've never tried to address those questions, and that's just because they really haven't come up in the passages we've been studying. But here they do. And I think it's important to understand the Scripture's teaching on these topics in order to really get a handle on what James is saying here. I mean, if you think about it, on one hand, James is talking about how we can find comfort in trials because God is in control of them. And on the other, he's talking about how we're responsible for our actions. We don't want to misapply either of those points. So I want to take time to address these questions with you. In the meantime, if this last thought is sobering. If it's sobering to consider that your actions reveal who you really are, if it discourages you because it forces you to look into the mirror and recognize that you are indeed a sinner, that you're not just a a basically good person who's sometimes forced to do bad things, but but that you sin because you're a sinner, then I'd encourage you to remember what James writes in the first half of this passage. That not only does God not force anyone to sin, but that He Himself is unable to sin. It's entirely contrary to His nature. He's repulsed by it. You see, on the, on the one hand, that truth can scare us. Because it means that God really does hate our sin. Right? And he's, and he's not some kind of corrupt judge that can be bought off with bribes. No, He hates it, and He's just, and He will punish it. But on the other hand, this thought should give us hope. Because it means that as much as we sin against God, He's never going to respond to us with wickedness. He's never going to return evil for evil. Again, that's how we we tend to handle the evil that's done against us. Someone sins against us and we want to make them pay. We demand vengeance. Vengeance. If that's how God responded to us in our sin, then we'd have every reason to fear because we sin against Him and provoke Him every single day. But what James is saying is that God is never going to be tempted to do that. He's never going to respond to evil with unrighteousness. As much as we provoke God with our sin, as much as we tempt Him, try Him, He's always going to respond in righteousness. And that gives us reason to hope because it means that He's going to return our evil with good. And He does. He does. So you know how I I said just a minute ago that you are what you do? Well, there's a sense in which if you're a Christian, that isn't entirely true. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And, And what this table represents is the believer's union with Christ. This is the idea that when the sinner believes on Christ, they are placed in Him he becomes their head and the two are united together in much the same way that a husband and wife become one flesh in marriage in this union all our sins are transferred to Christ and God looks on him as if he committed our sins that's what happened at the cross God poured out his wrath on Christ in our place and that's what the table commemorates the bread is his body which is broken for us the cup represents his blood which is shed for us So our sins are placed on Christ. That's one half of this union equation. And then in the other, His righteousness is placed on us in return. This is the wonderful mystery of the Gospel that sinners though we are, by faith we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so God looks upon us as if His obedience is our obedience. And so while what you do does reveal who you are, If you're a Christian, then that's not really your identity anymore. God doesn't treat you like that anymore. When He looks on you, He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son instead. Again, the Holy Spirit inside of you, the one who makes you feel like you're being dragged into sin against your will, Paul calls Him the spirit of adoption in Romans 8. And if you trace the argument that Paul makes in Romans 8, you'd see that the reason why he cries out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, at the end of chapter 7, is because he understands that this spirit is given as a promise that one day he'll share in the inheritance of Christ and dwell in the glory of God forever and ever. So if you've placed your faith in Christ and you find yourself fighting that same kind of battle and trials, then I would encourage you by reminding you that though you are a sinner, in God's eyes you're righteous. You have a new identity. And God's given that to you as a gift. That is how God has chosen to respond to your evil. So no, God doesn't mean to make you fail. He means to forgive you in spite of your failures. You know, you you are not good. But God is. He is very good. And for that, we can be grateful. Let's pray.